The views expressed herein reflect the views of the Whistler Agency as of the date of publication. These views may change as conditions change. The views expressed herein are not intended and should not be construed as investment advice, and they do not address any individual's specific situation. Welcome to Whistler While You Retire with Tim Whistler from the Whistler Agency. Here you will learn how Tim helps clients avoid taking unnecessary risks in retirement. With a fiduciary responsibility, Tim's mission is to help retirees and soon-to-be retirees create a greater sense of confidence about their retirement plan. Now, on to the show. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Whistler While You Retire. I'm Tim Whistler of the Whistler Agency, and now that we've got the word Whistler out of the way, we can move in into this, uh, this episode. I'm, I'm so excited to be uh, bringing this episode to you all. Uh, oftentimes in my conversations uh, with people about retirement income planning, uh, I'm asked about information on non-for-profit organizations. So I thought, you know, what better way to share information, you know, with them than for you to hear straight about it um, from the man with the vision. And uh, for those of you who have tuned in to previous episodes, you know that I'm a huge baseball fan. And uh, my mom grew up about an hour north of St. Louis in a small little town called Litchfield, Illinois. So I was born into a family of Cardinal fans. And, uh, you know, having grown up uh, as a kid and with aspirations of, of playing in the, in the pros, you know, what a thrill it was to watch Lou Brock steal bases and, and watch the Cardinals in the 80s with Whitey Ball and then Tony La Russa coming to town and, and um, you know, just Bush Stadium 3 being built. Uh, just fantastic organization to be a fan of. And one of the greatest experiences that I've ever had as a fan was when I was able to, to participate. Thank you um, to my father for this wonderful gift. But I was able to participate in the uh, Cardinals fantasy camp that took place in the summer of 2016. And it was at that camp that I met my guest on today's episode. And uh, my guest was a pitcher drafted right out of high school by the Cardinals in 2002 and he made his major league debut with them in 2008. And during his career, he mostly worked out of the bullpen, but in 2011, he went 20, 12 and seven, uh, starting 17 games for that team, as we all know, who ultimately won the World Series. And uh, you know, all Cardinals and Texas Rangers fans, unfortunately for them, you know, know the historical drama of game six and ultimately us uh, celebrating our 11th championship with the Cardinals. So it is an honor to introduce to you my guest today, Mr. Kyle McClellan. Kyle, thank you for being here, my friend. No problem. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so Kyle graciously accepted my, accepted my invitation to join me as a guest, um, again, to talk about what he's been doing with his time away from baseball. But before we get to that, I wanted to open it up, Kyle, for you to kind of share some um, you know, your life about what it was like uh, growing up there in St. Louis, um, cheering for the Cardinals, dominating high school baseball, and, you know, leading everything up to the draft. So share us a little bit about, you know, what that was like for you. Yeah, well, I mean, growing up here in St. Louis, you know, I was just like you, a huge Cardinals fan. Um, my dad had season tickets, worked for Oscar Meyer, and he was in charge of his group season tickets. So we went to tons of opening days. He would handpick, you know, the best games. And um, I mean, you know, we went down there all the time. And then once we could drive, me and my buddies would go down there and, you know, we'd buy the $5 bleacher seats and then we'd sneak yep. in the old tickets from the previous <laughs> games that, that showed we belong down low and, and we'd get kicked out of seats all the time. And, you know, just, just love baseball, love going down there. And um, once I got into my, probably my junior year, you know, I started to realize I might be able to go play, you know, baseball in college and started to get some attention. Uh, not really recruited heavily for Division One. 
Uh, and then finally, University of Missouri came around and, and offered me a scholarship. And um, it was a great place for me. It was close to home. My parents could go. My sister was going to school there already. Cool. And um, so I was excited about the opportunity to go and get my education there at University of Missouri and play baseball. Um, and then throughout through my senior year, <clears throat> I signed in November and I went to a showcase in I think it was December, January, and I and I touched 94 miles an hour and, and it opened up the floodgates for the professional side. Um, and so every game I pitched uh, and, and even games I didn't pitch in, there would be scouts at and, um, you know, then I realized, well, man, I, I might have a chance to, to maybe get drafted here. So you're just like every other high school kid, you're projected to be a top 10 round pick, top five round pick. Um, and I really struggled my first few games having all the attention on me. I've been on other teams where they were there to watch other people, but very rarely, uh, I actually never had, I've been, especially in high school, they were all there to just see me. And um, I tried to overdo it a little bit, try to do, you know, throw too hard. And, and, and it took me a little while to learn. And then I settled down and, and had a good season. And uh, ultimately the Cardinals were the one that drafted me. I got drafted in the 25th round. We, there was, we, we actually turned them down in the ninth round and, um, you know, decided I was going to go to college. I mean, they, you know, it's pretty hard being a 17 year old kid, the phone rings and they offer you um, a signing bonus right then and there. And so you got two minutes to decide. And, uh, you know, so my dad was just like, you just can't do it. You got to have scholarship to Mizzou. You know, you're already in a good spot. It's, it's, it's just, we can't, you know, give it up for this. And so we um, um, went to, you know, so they, they said, we're going to draft you in the second day and see what happens. And uh, so they drafted me there, ended up not having a fifth, they had a fifth round catcher not signed. And so they ultimately, you know, I kind of flipped into that fifth round spot and it was a tough decision, you know, being 17 and trying to figure out, do you, do you sign professionally? Do you go to college? Um, not knowing what lays ahead and uh, made that decision that I thought my best opportunity to make it to the major leagues would be to go straight into professional ball um, with the teaching and coaching and development and go from there. So took a chance, signed there, um, really struggled the first couple of years and just trying to figure out who I was as a pitcher. You know, you go from walking on any field in high school, being the best pitcher out there and, you know, facing kids that have no, no business facing the guy for <laughs> nine miles an hour to, you know, guys coming out of polished universities that 90 miles an hour is like BP to them. And so I really had to learn on the fly how to, how to pitch and uh, who I was as a pitcher and what was going to make me successful and, and it took quite a while. And then I, then I had uh, Tommy John surgery, spent 22 months in rehab, trying to get back from that after two elbow surgeries. Uh, and when I came back, it finally clicked and, and it, and it went quickly from there. I, I went to, to high A ball for a month and pitched really well, got promoted to double A. I had never been in above low A and I struggled at low A mm -hmm. um, and just got an opportunity and uh, went to double A pitched really well and went to the Arizona fall league for a little bit until I got married. And then uh, the next year came into big league camp and a couple injuries. I was pitching well and, and I ended up making the team. And so I'm 23 years old, getting ready to come back for opening day here in St. Louis, you know, my hometown and, you know, get to make my major league debut on that opening day, which we all, everybody that's from St. Louis knows how big of a deal opening day is. So, yep. you know, all my friends and family were there and everybody's watching and, <laughs> Uh, so to make my debut there, everybody asked the highlight of my career. That's definitely the highlight. You know, the World Series is great. Don't get me wrong. But, right. you know, everything that goes into, you know, all the people that sacrificed, all the people that took you to practice and all the balls my dad threw to me and played catch and, and uh, you know, all that. And then to have that debut and be able for them to be there and, and celebrate it with me was was the highlight. Uh, and then from there, I, I never went back. I, I 
you know, I thought I was going to be there for just a little bit until uh, they had some guys come off the DL. I'd never pitched in AAA and I didn't know if I could cut it. You know, I didn't know if I could pitch at the major league level. And um, I, Tony threw me in situations where I got to go out and, and prove myself, um, which for a young pitcher, especially just my mentality, I love that. You know, yeah. I don't want to pitch in those 10 run games. I want to be there when the game's on the line. And if I'm, if I'm not made out for it, if I'm not ready, we'll know soon. But if I am ready, you know, these are the roles I want to be in. So I did that for three years. And then, you know, like I said, 2011 went in the rotation when Wainwright had Tommy John and um, you know, what a great year that was. Ultimately it ended up being the end of me though. Yeah, having that innings, that spike that I had, it took a wear and tear on me. And uh, I was never the same after that year, halfway through that year, actually it started you know, to kind of catch up with me and uh, ended up the next year having a surgery, which led to another one, which led to two more and, Man. and the end of my career. So <laughs> it didn't end uh, pretty, but it, it usually never does. You know, there's right. very few people that, that ever get into the game that get to exit the way they want you know, professional sports is unique in that way. I think in a lot of business settings, people get to, they get to set the exact date they want to leave, you know, right. and they get to, to line things up financially and do all that. Uh, for us, you don't know. I mean, you, you right. literally, every time you go out there, there's a chance that could be the last time. And, yep. um, you know, so I ended up playing about five and a half years, uh, went to the Texas Rangers after my time in St. Louis and a great organization. Just, I wasn't healthy. Uh, it was a struggle for me and, um, tried to come back after that and, and uh, I realized I couldn't come back when I had uh, a scout that actually was the scouting director when I was in high school and he's here local. And I, I called him. I said, Hey, can you meet me out here at this high school and put the gun on me? I want to see where I'm at. Sure. You've seen me in, in the minor, you've seen me in high school. You've seen me in the minor leagues. You've seen me in the major leagues. I haven't let anybody see me, but I want you to take a look <laughs> at me. And I was throwing 71 miles an hour, 78 miles an hour. And, and I thought I was close. And I realized at that point, it's just not going to work. And it hurt. Um, ended up having two surgeries after that and Man. to get it kind of cleaned up. So it was, uh, you know, it was a great run. Yeah, I was 28 and, and retired and, and trying to figure out what's next. And, Man. you know, you look back and, you know, I spent 12 years in, in the Cardinals organization, you know, grew up I and mean, we went from a kid to a man in the organization, learned a ton, you know, through all those people and coaches. And, you know, and I still have, I'm still really fortunate to be here in St. Louis, um, still be very involved with, with the team and organization, do a ton of stuff for them on the alumni side. And, Nice. on the corporate side and, and appearances and things like that. So um, I still get to go down there and hang out at Bush stadium and get on the field every once in a while. And uh, I do some radio stuff too with KMOX. So I get around the players. Usually this is the first spring training actually uh, in 16 years that I haven't been down there. Uh, we made the decision this year. We sold our place down there and okay. uh, with our kids, we're, we're staying here. We used to go for three months. So now we're, we're hanging out and uh, you know, hopefully still do some radio stuff this year as, hopefully this coronavirus thing dies off and we get back to normal. Yes. I hope so too. You know, you, you were talking, walking us through the, the minor league experience and something that you had said triggered a thought. We were talking a little bit before we came on the air, talking about you know, your time with Peoria and, and the Peoria chiefs are just literally 15 minutes from my house. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I remember going, you know, going to those games and, you know, again, at that point, you don't really know when you're watching all this talent on the field, a lot of times you don't really know who's going to make that next promotion to high A, then double A and go on to the Cardinals. But, you know, Yada came through here. Albert came through here. You know, then the Peoria Chiefs were a Cubs organization for a while, which was hardly ever went to games then, you know, whatever, for whatever reason. But, you know, then when they flip back over to the Cardinals, but, you know, during your time in Peoria, Kyle, and even just in the minor leagues, you know, the ebbs and flows that you went through, you know, who was, 
who did you kind of lean upon to kind of get you through those times to keep you focused to hopefully get to that next level? Uh, really, it was myself. Really, um, you know, you got you got coaches that that are there, and yeah, I really struggled in Peoria. I had a hard time, you know, getting through there. Pop Warner was the hitting coach there, and I know Pop from St. Louis. We worked out in the off season together. He gave lessons at my dad's batting cages, so I knew Pop. But it's hard, you know, when you're when you're going through it there. Um, you're with your coaches all day, every day, and you know sometimes you just gotta say, hey, what, you know, I gotta I gotta do this myself um, because I, I was there. I was there in 04. Then I went back, you know, when they flipped to, to the Cubs, I went to quad cities the next year in 05. That's right. I went yep. to switch affiliations there yep. and, and struggled there, had the same coaching staff, same pitching coach. And, you know, Al Holland was a pitching coach of mine in rookie ball. That really was great for me. Mm-hmm. He was kind of like that father figure. And for a 17 year old kid that's coming out of high school away from home for the first time, man, you, you kind of needed that. And, yep. um, so he was a guy I would talk to, you know, here and there. When I went through rehab, he was down there in extended spring training and helped me. But but when you're there, you know, when you're in the season, you're you're kind of on an island. You know, you're you're out there by yourself. You got to make the changes. And the minor leagues is a lot tougher than the major leagues, I would say, in terms of that, because you know every the coach is trying to develop all of his all of his staff. Yeah, you know, he's trying to put in time with everybody. At the major league level, there's really not there's no time for development. You know, if if you're not there, they're not going to babysit you. Either you can do it or you can't. You know, (laughs) in the minor leagues, they know like, hey, we're stretching here. He's going to take his lumps. And and every, everyone is that. Just like you said, you don't know who's going to be the one that's going to come out of there. So you owe it to everybody to put that time in with them. And it's hard. And it's also cutthroat, you know, from the other pitchers on the staff because they want to be the guy called up, not you. Um, And so, you're kind of isolated a little bit and and really, I mean, you got to do it yourself. You got to be willing to put the work in. You got to be willing. And I think that's where, after I came off the surgery, I was just more mature too. You know, like I knew, Hey, this game can be taken away from me. When I was in Peoria and 18 years old, you know, it's like, I'm just going to play ball until I want to be done. Um, And then all of a sudden you have that surgery and you realize, Hey, maybe not, you know, this thing could be over here real quick and I got a really good chance here. I don't want to waste and I better start, you know, focusing and figuring out who I am and and how I'm going to, you know, get to the big leagues here real quick because my time's running out. So it's hard, man. That that low A, I, I say all the time, if my son was in the same situation I was in, he would go to college. If you look statistically, I, I don't know the number, but I would guess on the major league roster of, of U.S. players, probably over 75% are college players. And, and if you take the first round pick high school kids out of there, it would probably be 80%, 90% of, you know, non-high school players that, that are there. It's just so hard there's so much development and time that has to happen. And if you're not that first round pick that has a heavy investment in you, um, that's clearly skills wise, head and shoulders above everybody else. It's a tough road. And um, then you don't have that education to fall back on. You know, you didn't do it. You're say you kick around in the minor leagues for a few years, you're 25 years old, get released. Are you going to go back to college for four years? You know, it's a tough, tough decision. So um, if my son was in my situation, now you're a first round pick, you're going to sign, you know, right there's no doubt about that. That's life-changing money, but uh, yep. you know, it's a, it's, it's a tough road for high school kids. Definitely. Yep. Well, very cool. You know, and, and just to clear things up too, you know, when I was at the fantasy camp, you know, I'm so thankful to say I was not facing Kyle McClellan when he was on the mound. They, they had, a, they had a rule there that, you know, the, the Cardinal legends could bat, but they couldn't pitch. So that, that gave us campers the opportunity to, uh, you know, hit a 51 mile an hour fastball from another camper. So that was kind of a cool thing, but, but, uh, but I tell you what though, I mean, Kyle, you were so, you know, it was such a cool thing to have never experienced anything like that before and hanging out with you and all the other legends and how gracious you guys were. And, 
So again, I thank you for, you know, you know, just the impact you had on me and just how cool it was. I don't, I know you won't remember this because you've been to multiple camps, but it was our first night there. Uh, it was, you know, we had the, that, that Thursday night and then we had the first dinner on that Friday night and we were standing there in line and my dad was with us and, and he pulled out the picture that he had taken of Stan Musial when he was being recognized for his 3000th hit there at Sportsman's Park. You know, he had done it in Chicago and came back. And we're standing there in line and my dad's showing you the picture. And you're like, that is so cool. And you're talking. And I just looked at you and said, hey, man, you know, thanks for, for doing this for us. I mean, it was the coolest thing that, you know, a bunch of us, no names can, can get together. And you just put your hand on my shoulder. And you're like, Tim, it's, it's, we're happy to do it. And he goes, and you're part of the club, you know, and, right here. <laughs> and I thought that was the coolest thing, brother. So I appreciate that. But, you know, let's, let's, let's are, we enjoy those camps more than you guys do, you know, <laughs> just getting back around, putting the uniform on and yeah. Um, you know, I think it's awesome that, that people pay to come to these camps to have the experience and, and, yeah. and to want to do that and to want us to be there. And, yeah. uh, the Cardinals obviously do a great job. I haven't been to any other fantasy camps, but I would, I would wow. bet money that there's not an organization that does it the way the Cardinals do. And so for us, shoot, I, I'd circle it on my calendar. I can't wait. <laughs> I totally agree, man. I tell you that was, you know, when I'm, when I signed up for that thing, you know, they're asking about measurements for my Jersey and my number, yeah. my walk-up song. And I'm like, are you yeah. kidding me? You know, <laughs> and sure enough for three glorious days, we were pros and it was fantastic. And, uh, yep. but, but I, I tell you, you know, let, let's kind of change topics now. Let's get in now into the, to the next phase of your life. Something that you and your wife and, and your other team have been you know, doing since your time away from baseball. I just think this is fantastic. And I wanted to share this time with you for you to kind of, you know, talk about what you've been doing and, and how you got involved with Brace for Impact and, and you know, about the foundation and, and how it's ministering to folks there in St. Louis, as well as in Haiti. Yeah. So we, uh, my wife and I, during our time playing, always wanted the opportunity to get involved in a, in a charity and, and give back. I was born in St. Louis, raised in St. Louis, won a World Series here and knew that, that that was the height of my platform, you know, to, if we wanted to do something, um, we looked for three years. We actually, my dad had just retired. And so we went over there and met with him and I put together proposals like, Hey, why don't you run our foundation? You know, we want to do this family foundation. And it just, it just wasn't the right fit. Then we looked into, to us, you know, doing something and, and, and supporting a, another charity, not doing our own. And we couldn't find it. And that's really what led, I guess we did that first. That's what led us to maybe, maybe we start our own. And, you know, I don't suggest everybody just go out there and start a charity. It's, you know, there are some amazing ones out there. It was just for us. We couldn't find that. We couldn't find that thing. We couldn't find that. It, and, and thankfully, um, you know, our, our family had been healthy up to this point. You know, a lot of people get in because they lost someone due to something or, you know, there's something that they're passionate about because it happened to them or their family. Um, and thankfully we didn't have any of those situations. I knew what, I look at, I look at our giving, uh, just like investments. And so I, I just wanted the best return on my investment. I didn't just want to do it just to do it. And I didn't want to put my name on something and have somebody run it that wasn't done well. And, and so we just sat on it and it was like, let's just wait and pray and wait for the, the right opportunity. And, uh, Adam Wainwright's a great friend of mine. And so we would talk all the time in the locker room and Adam does charity stuff everywhere. I mean, he's all over the place and, and Adam and I think very similarly, and so I was like, hey, what are some things you're doing that we can get involved with? Because I know if Adam's supporting it, it's been vetted. It's, yep. it's, it, it aligns with it. He will not support. I love Adam to death. Uh, we're very good friends. He will not give me a penny in, if it doesn't line up with exactly what he wants to do. And that's the way it should be. You know, that's the way people should, should do their, their giving. And, um, and so I knew that if he was doing it, it was a safe bet um, and a great organization. And, 
and we just couldn't find like that one thing that that was it. So fast forward a couple of years, uh, we had put this money aside and, and I called them. I said, Hey, I got a pretty good idea where my career is heading here. I'm, I'm just getting set for, I don't know what number of surgery, but a lot. And, um, I just had a really rough year with the Rangers and spent most of the time in double a, and, you know, I, I got to get rid of this money. Um, I go back to the parable of talent, essentially buried our treasure and nobody's, nobody's benefiting from it. We're not even getting an interest on it. Cause I was afraid to lose it. And I said, we got to get rid of it. And, uh, he said, I tell you what, we're going to Haiti in three weeks. Why don't you go with me? And I've always wanted to do something like that, but never always use baseball as kind of a crutch and excuse not to go. Um, but at this point I I just had surgery, so I had no excuse. So I was like, Hey, I'm in, you know, I'm, I don't know what we're doing. I don't know anything about Haiti, but I'm going with my friend. So, you know, let's go. Mm -hmm. And, and the reason we went there is he was supporting a children's home there that, uh, a partner of ours, our partner now, um, he's a chaplain for the Pittsburgh Pirates. So we got to know him through our time there. Every time we went in Pittsburgh on a Sunday, he would do chapel. He was our, our leader at a conference we went to. And so we just got to know him and, um, he had been working in Haiti for 30 years. And, um, so Adam knew that and went to him and said, Hey, we're Jenny and I are expanding what we're doing globally. How can we help with what you're doing in Haiti? He's like, man, we've been trying to build this orphanage. And so Adam and Jenny finished the orphanage. Well, Adam's financial advisor is Christian financial advisor. And his big thing is you're going to write the check because that's what makes things go. But you're also going to give up your time because that's your sacrifice. You know, for Adam Wainwright to write a check for $20,000 isn't necessarily, you know, uh, affecting his pocketbook. But for him to give up three days of his offseason to go, that's a significant, you know, uh, donation of his time. And, 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 you know, that's where his sacrifice comes. Mm-hmm. but it's also his obligation and responsibility to see the funds that he's giving. So if he's given these funds, he needs to make sure that the funds are doing what he wants it to do or to not get involved in that. And that's, you know, that's kind of their philosophy. And so we were on that trip to see it and uh, to see the money at work, to see if this is where they want to continue to invest or not. And uh, when we got there, I couldn't tell you ahead of time what we were looking for, but as soon as we got there, we knew it was it. And, and so I told my wife, I said, man, this is where we need to be. And, and it's ironic because I did not want to do anything international. I wanted it all to be local. I wanted it to be St. Louis. You know, I was like, we got to do something here. And it's funny how we got guided there because the number one thing we got when we first started was, ah, we, you know, what do I, there's so much problems here in the U S and in St. Louis. And, and, uh, so I get that I was there. Uh, and so I can talk to people about that and share our, our side of that. And, and, uh, but the infrastructure was there, the leadership was there to where our investment would, would go. We didn't have to run it. We didn't have to do the day-to-day operation of it. We have six kids that grew up in an orphanage together that had this dream and vision and they sit on the board. They run everything. This is their vision. They're local people that know um, the community. They know the needs of the community. I say, every time I do a speech, if everybody in this room or listening to this podcast jumped on a plane and we went down to Haiti and I asked you to give me the top five things that are needed to fix that situation, we would all come up with good things, but it wouldn't be the top five of the people in the community would give us. And that's because we don't live there. We don't know it. And so finding those local leaders, local leaders and trusting them to carry out the mission and for us to do our thing and where I'm most valuable is to raise money. I'm not valuable down there on the ground telling people in a foreign country how to do things and what they need. I'm valuable supporting them, elevating their platform, raising up local leaders and investing in them and, uh, and going to get people to join our team to do that. And so we came back and we started, um, I said, what do you need? And they said, we'd like to expand our orphanage. Um, we were cramped in here. We'd like to expand it. So we raised $212,750 in 19 months, built the second level of that. 
And ultimately I thought, all right, we'll go to Honduras. We'll go to Africa. We'll, we'll do this all over the place. And it was about my second or third trip down there. I realized we can't leave here. Uh, one, we put the burden on them of a bigger building. We need to financially commit to that. Secondly, to, to find this leadership team that we have here to run this in a third world country, I'm going to spend so much money in a bad way of failing and losing and getting taken advantage of. I owe it to our, our donors and our investors to give them the best return on their investment, which is right here. Um, and so how can we take this and expand on this and really help elevate this leadership team? And so we've built an orphanage uh, between Adam and Jenny, our, our charity and our partner, we're a three-headed monster, I say. Adam and Jenny like to build buildings, so they built a school. So we have a, K th a pre-K through eight. Uh, we have 330 kids in that school. Uh, our organization feeds them every day. We pay for the daily feeding program. We also give them food on the weekends so that they can go home because we, we heard from the teachers that on Mondays, the kids were terrible and they were falling asleep and they weren't paying attention. And so we did a, we did a, a, a survey and we realized the kids weren't eating on the weekends. And so that their, their meals they were getting at school was the meals they were counting on. And so, so Saturday, Sunday, they weren't eating. So then we came up with a, a weekend feeding program where we give them backpack meals they can take home. And it, it increased attendance, it increased their, their grades and the way they're paying attention. Um, we have a kid that grew up in the orphanage that became a doctor. He went to seven years medical school and said, I want to come back and serve my community. He's on our leadership team on the board. And, and uh, so Adam and Jenny built him a hospital. There's, I don't know, they see a thousand people a month. I don't know how many people are on staff. It creates so many jobs. They'd had 107, 114 babies delivered the first year there, no fatalities in a community that infant fatality rates 38%. Clean drinking water for over 40,000 people, 1,100 toilets we put in the communities in, in different homes. There's a vocational school that just opened up and, and we got you know some other, other plans. There's a high school in the, in the works and a, some transitional housing for the kids at the orphanage. But it's been, a, it's been an awesome ride. I've learned so much. I've met so many amazing people. And then two years into it, we said, we got to do something here local. Uh, we need, we need to do a St. Louis component to this. And so we came back and, and, uh, found another, what, we took what we learned in Haiti and wanted to replicate it here. And we knew that started with local leadership. We found a great leader that's from the community as a, a pastor of a church in the community. And we wanted to go to the inner city. We wanted to go to North city, St. Louis in, in one of the toughest areas. Um, but knew that we couldn't be the vehicles to do this. We couldn't come in there and, and start telling people of that community what was going to happen, what they need is the same as Haiti. Um, so we support him. Uh, he's a young future leader that uh, we recognize like, man, if we could just give him the opportunity and get him going, he's going to do amazing things. And we started with safe. He said the biggest need in the community is safe, stable housing. And um, what he means by that is people on average move three to four times in that community. When you're doing that, the kids are hopping into different schools and finding different friends. And um, it, it, kids need stability. You know, you think about in your family and my family, if, if we're constantly moving my kids around and putting them in different scenarios, it's hard for them to be successful. Yep. And so we, we buy these houses that are run down and dilapidated that are eyesores for the community. We, we rehab them with all local contractors. We don't do any volunteer work. We hire all local contractors. Um, we've created jobs on each house creates about 40 to 50 jobs. And we hired about, a, about an 80% minority rate. And, wow. and so what we want to do is say, look, we, we want to allow you to be a part of this transformation in this community. Uh, we want you to, to benefit from this. And what you're seeing is that these construction workers have such loyalty to the project and commitment to, to the project because it's providing for the family, you know, and, and it gives them the dignity and integrity of, of being a part of that and having some, a place to go every day. And so we have 11 houses done. 
uh, with families moved in. And once the families are in, we have a, a community coordinator that works with that family that through our partner that, that um, gets them everything they need. So it's not like the families go in the house and then we go to the next street. It's the family goes in the house and, and they surround them with the things they need to be successful. The only requirement for these families is they have to have kids. You know, we, we want their kids. That's who we want to pour into and, and change the trajectory of their future. Yep. Um, and so they have a, a great house that's, that's fully renovated from, you know, some of these houses were built in, in, uh, in, in the, the 1800s, 1897, I think was the last one we just did. Goodness. Fully restored, put the families in and, uh, and go from there. And our, our partner, you know, what Bridge and I had hoped for him has happened. And he is just exploding in that community with so <laughs> many different ways that he's helping people and, and his growth has been, it's been a lot of fun to watch. So, you know, we get to cheerlead. That's really what we do. Um, sure. we, we're very hands off. We're not a very heavy volunteer. We get tons of people like we want to volunteer. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm really sorry. We just don't have <laughs> those opportunities. You know, we, 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 and that's just the way we choose to do it. And, um, you know, but we, we're cheerleaders. We, we fundraise and, and we support those local workers so they can go out and, and, uh, and make a difference. And it's been a lot of fun. We've been doing this for, uh, I guess uh, January of 14, we started. Okay. So hard to believe we're seven years, you know, seven years into this. And yeah. um, I would have never told you I'd still be doing it when we started it. You know, <laughs> I didn't know what it would turn into, but it's a, I mean, it's a, you know, people are counting on us. So yep. we're not going anywhere. We're committed to this. Awesome. And uh, we, we love that we get to wake up every day. My wife's our executive director. I'm a, I'm a volunteer. I don't get paid to be a part of this. Okay. Uh, we have a program manager that, uh, that is from Haiti that, that uh, got adopted here 10 years ago is incredible. And so we're a staff of two, we're a team of, two, of three, a staff of two, and uh, we get to wake up every day and make a difference for people. Very cool. And I, I tell you what, you know, we've all heard that saying, you know, you give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. You teach yeah. a man a fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. And, and, and how awesome is, you know, it is to hear that when you guys are not only pouring yourselves into an organization like this, but then you're, you're, you're surrounding it with leadership. You know, and, and I heard you on a previous podcast where you were talking about, you know, medical staff and how you guys were, you can certainly bring in medical staff from here down there, but then what about teaching them how to take care of their own? And I thought that was really amazing, you know, that you guys are developing leaders within the organization. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, the heart, the heart. So our hospital, it's the easy, it's the easy mission trip. So everybody wants to go. I'm a nurse. I'm a doctor. I want to go. And right. well, we, we really had to tell a lot of people no. And it, and it to be honest, it kind of pisses people off. Um, sure. <laughs> and, and, and so we just have to kind of explain to them, like, look, this is how we choose to do it. So we have a, a doctor here from Mercy that's kind of overseeing this, a, a great friend of ours. And he said, hey, I'm doing stuff in Ghana. I want to see what you guys got going in Haiti. And we took him down there. And he's like, let me take this from you. And I'm like, please, because I don't know anything about medical. <laughs> um, so this would be great. Right. And so he put together a team and, and we do trips down there quarterly. And, and what we learned early on was we're not really maximizing our time here. And, and we were cautious of how we wanted to do it because you have to think about the, the vision you're giving the community. When you come in and you kick all the local doctors out and say, hey, um, come see me. I'm the expert. You know, it's yeah. free. Essentially, what you're doing is you're saying those doctors don't know as much as I do. Just wait. And then people start waiting until the Americans come back. Well, you don't know. Can you? call your American friends or when are they coming back? I'll come back when they come back. And the reality is that our staff is highly capable of treating people down there. Um, and so what we are so careful to do is we, I say we lead from behind. We want to get down there and support that staff. So we do more seminars and training. 
um, education for them, um, help them get access to technology and things that they typically don't. And, uh, and I love, man, I got pictures on my phone of, of nurses down there, like going through books with people of like how to use an EKG machine and, you know, we, that we brought down for them. And like, I love that teaching and training because the reality is we're there for four days. And when we leave, they have to use that machine. They have right. to know how to read it they have to know how to utilize it. They have to know how to, you know, provide care for those people. And, um, and, and we would do, we've done it and we still do. We, we go out and we do the deal where you see, you know, hundreds of people a day and, and treat them. And what we try to do is, is select one area. So we're seeing the same people over and over and over instead of going to, I mean, you could set up mobile clinics everywhere sure. and people are going to show up and you'll be there all day and you'll feel good because you saw a lot of people, but it really doesn't change anything. Right. We can change things by educating and training and empowering our local staff to go out and, and do this every day. And, and th- this is really our strength through this whole pandemic. I haven't been there. I'm, I'm going in uh, three weeks okay. um, for the first time and everything's fine. It run, it, it has run because of the fact that we have leaders there, you know, our, our hospital still runs. They don't need us down there. The school has still run. They don't need us down there. They don't need us to hold their hand. They're totally capable of doing it. They've had to make changes because we financially have forced them to make changes just with it being a down year. But, uh, but the reality is, we've done a great job of, of rising up leaders and that it's allowed us to be successful through this stretch here. I won't say, well, I guess successful, but we've made yeah. it, you know, yeah. we're still there and running and things are still going where there's probably a lot of places that aren't because they, they haven't had, uh, you know, those leaders built into the program. Yep. Absolutely. And, and you alluded to it before. Have you heard anything about, you know, what's been going on down there with COVID? I mean, did it affect anybody on the health side of things so, or? Yeah. You know, when they first came out, they said 10% of the population would die. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is uh, like, I can't even, it's going to be over a million people are going to die from this on this little island right? Um, because everybody down there has underlying health issues. Right. Um, and so that would be devastating. Thankfully, the virus has not been very rampant down there. Now, the testing I would tell you is probably suspect. There's, sure. I would imagine it's there, but it's not, it hasn't been near what anybody thought. Um, there has been a couple cases at our hospital where they sent them somewhere else and got tested but it hasn't been an outbreak. It's been like a couple here and there. And that's because people aren't traveling. Yeah. So our concern is, you know, we start going down there and then all of a sudden this virus does it. So we're only taking people that have been vaccinated so that we're, you know, people that are safe to the community, um, people that we engage with. We won't probably on this trip have a ton of interaction with the kids at the orphanage, which is going to be tough. I haven't seen them in a year, but um, we're going to be, you know, real careful on this and and make sure it's going to be a big trip for us because it's the first time we've been on the ground. And, and so it's going to signal to the community, you know, we're still here. Yep. Uh, we haven't left. We haven't forgot about you. We're still here. I'm interested to see what they, what their reaction to us is. Cause yeah. you know, this is the, you know, I'm getting messages from them like, Hey, what's, you know, what's going on there. I hope you guys are safe and doing okay. Like the things they're hearing about us, it's funny because it's flipped, you know, we're the problem <laughs> right. uh, in this situation, which usually isn't the case. Right. Yep. Yep. So as we close up here, you know, where can people find you on the internet and how can they get involved to, to support um, the program? Yeah. So uh, Brace for Impact 46 is our organization name. Uh, Brace for Impact 46.com is our website. Uh, we have, we're on Instagram and Facebook. We try to post every day, just little things about what we're doing. We post a lot more about our Haiti side than our North city side. Um, strategically one and two, just content wise. Sure. But we're equally passionate about both programs. It doesn't change anything on that. A couple of ways that people can jump in and support. We on the on the Haiti side, 
Um, we, we have a couple cool programs. We have our child sponsorship program, um, which we're really trying to beef up this year. Um, you can jump in at any dollar amount. We have some recommended dollar amounts of like $35 a month. Um, it costs $208 to take care of a kid, uh, for a, uh, per month. It's $2,500 a year. So $208 a month. Um, so we have a sliding scale of, of amounts on there. Um, you can jump in, pick a, pick a child on there. We'll send you some information on them. We're pretty upfront, like bear with us, especially now on some of the content, but we try to get some videos from the kids and pictures of them. It's, we haven't been there in a year, so it's been difficult. Um, but we try to keep people updated on that so they can just kind of keep tabs of their child. And then we have a coffee program that we launched two years ago that uh, called these coffee here, a local St. Louis company came to us and said, Hey, I think we can help you with something. Haiti used to be a massive coffee producer to the world. And for some reason they're not, but you guys are doing stuff down there. We actually looked into buying a farm. The elevation wasn't right where we are. They grow all the coffee on the Southern part of the Island. We're up on the Northern part, but we buy uh, these beans in Haiti and ship them over here. And then, so it supports the workers and farmers there. And then we take it, bag it, and we sell it. And all the money we raise goes back to sending kids to our school. So I have a coffee bag right here. So 24 bags of this nice. will send a kid to school for an entire year. Wow. And so that's, uh, you know, a bag is, we have a couple different options. We have bags like 16 bucks. Um, you can do a subscription, which gets it down to 12.99 per bag. Okay. And then we ship it out to you every three months. So if you want if you drink two bags a month, you know, you would put six in your order and every three months we just drop ship you, it auto bills you and we drop ship you. And that's, that's something we're really trying to beef up that, that sustainable income. If we can get recurring donations on the child sponsorship and, and these coffee um, sponsorships or coffee subscriptions, that's going to help us know what we're dealing with and, and get us away from the peaks and valleys that we go through as an organization. So sure. uh, those are really the two, two of the really cool programs we have on the Haiti side, the North city side, you know, if, if, if you're interested in investing in, in North city, St. Louis and providing jobs and opportunity, and then ultimately the, the safety and stability of families, uh, we would love to have you, you know, support that on our North city side. We don't have any cool programs like we do on the Haiti side for that. Uh, but it, it, it goes towards, you know, all the renovation and construction costs. And then the, the community coordinators, uh, job of, of helping keep these, these families stabilized. So yeah, those would be the, a couple of the biggest ways that people could support Awesome. Very cool. Well, Kyle, I mean, this time has just flown by. I can't believe we've been on the air this long already, but thank you so much again for carving out yeah. your time. I know you're a busy guy. It's just a pleasure to visit with you again and see and interact with you. Uh, so again, my, my guest today, folks, was Kyle McClellan and uh, braceforimpact46.com is the website. I encourage you to go check it out, get involved, get some coffee subscriptions going, participate in, in a child sponsorship and support this wonderful cause. And thanks again, Kyle, for your time. Appreciate it very much, my friend. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So thanks again for joining us for today's episode. Uh, again, I'm Tim Whistler from the Whistler Agency. Looking forward to seeing you again on another episode of Whistler While You Retire. Take care. Thank you for listening to Whistler While You Retire. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Whistler Agency. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.
Investment advisory and financial planning services offered through Simplicity Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Insurance, consulting, and education services offered through the Whistler Agency. The Whistler Agency is a separate and unaffiliated entity from Simplicity Wealth LLC.